excited about being with you. I want to share with you tonight out of uh, Revelation, uh, continuing our study in this uh, phenomenal book that we're just running, running away with, having a, having a wonderful time just investigating about the kingdom. Uh, as we've been presenting the book of Revelations and been studying it, we've been finding uh, in the book of Revelation uh, that in its most basic form, and you've heard this, has two sections. You have the prologue, which is a statement before, and then of course you have the book of Revelation itself. You have the prophecy of Revelation. When you get into a working investigation of the book, we've lumped in the prophecy with the first chapter. And therefore we have three sections, basically the next level of division. So we've taken Revelation and we've looked at it into three basic sections. Uh, the first section uh, we've looked at is the first, makes up the first chapter, which is an introductory kind of section, okay? In other words, everything going on in the first chapter is for the purpose of introducing, okay? There's nothing casual in there. There's no break from that. Everything in this first chapter, from the introduction uh, to the instruction on praise to John's situation and where he's at when this, uh, the commission to write down this prophecy came to him, all of that is for the purpose of introduction. We're going to deal with some of that tonight. It's really significant. Uh, the introduction is given specifically to, the focus of this introduction is given to the second section, which are the seven churches which are given to us in chapters 2 and 3, and they're listed there for us and you can go through and, and you can become familiar with them. Okay, So you have the first chapter, which is an introductory kind of a chapter to the, focus to the seven churches in the private province of Asia, chapters 2 and 3. The last section, which is the actual prophecy itself, beginning at chapter 4 and extending to the end of the book, is what's being introduced. Really easy. First chapter, introduction to chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches of the province of Asia. Uh, what's being introduced is the actual prophecy prophecy itself, which is from chapter 4 to the end of the book. Really been, I've really been taken with the first chapter uh, as I've been kind of walking through and allowing, like these seven churches, uh, to be introduced to the prophecy. We've taken this first chapter, and we've, uh, which is the introduction, we've kind of looked at it, that there are four basic little sections within this first chapter, four things that are being introduced. The first three verses we call the prologue. Okay? That's an overall statement regarding the book of prophecy and what the focus of it is. He's introducing the whole prophecy to us. It's all about Jesus. Okay, first three verses of the prologue. Verses 4 through 5a is the persons section. That's where John is introducing our God, our one God in three persons. Okay, it's being introduced. Verses 5b down through verse 8 is the praise section, which is the tone and the flow of the entire book of uh, Revelation. It is the backbone of the prophecy. You with me? Okay, so verses 5b down through 8 is the praise section, the backbone of the book of prophecy. From verse 9 down through the uh, end of the chapter is the Patmos section. Okay, that is where John is actually uh, uh, located, where he was present when he received the commission to write down this gospel. We're going to be in verses 9 down through verse 20 tonight, and specifically... Um, verse 9, and been kind of just saturating. If you've been here this week and, and uh, kind of uh, in the morning sessions, the first session, and followed through that grueling time of uh, Bible study and, and learning about uh, what we believe concerning the Word and, and what we consider a Bible study, which is saturating in the Word, been doing that in verses 9 down through verse 20. And so we've been dividing this up and trying to understand it. And what I've been finding is, is in verses 9 through 20, you you have what would appear to be, now hear this, this is really important. 
kind of got tripped up on this at first. You have what might appear to be information given. So you've had some significant things that take place in the first chapter. You've had some significant introduction kind of things taking place that had to be done. And then, okay, John kind of backs off of that, verses 9 through 20, and says, I might as well tell you how I got this. Yeah, I was on the Isle of Patmos. Man, that was a trip. Can't tell you about that. And it was on the Lord's Day and heard this voice and Jesus was there. And you could almost strike this up as information, but it's not. The entire focus of verses 9 down through the end of the chapter is focused on the details of the kingdom. Okay? It's the details of the kingdom. Now, one of the things we've been finding uh, as we've been embracing uh, this prophecy is that the kingdom is a major, obviously, a major uh, theme that runs throughout the book. And the term kingdom we've already looked at this week. Okay? And the term kingdom, it's really when you take that word and you begin to look at it, you find out that the majority of the time that you hear the kingdom talked about in the book of Revelation, it's in the singular. In other words, it's not plural, it's singular the majority of the times. But even when it's in singular, it can refer to a group. Uh, in other words, earlier this week we looked at verse 6. Uh, if you look over at verse 6, it says, uh, after verse 5, <laughs> of course, uh, that we have been freed from our sins by His blood and has, we have been made to be a kingdom. That's singular. Okay? In other words, he's talking about people, individuals. Okay? You and I are to be made a kingdom. And when we took that word and we defined that word, we found out that the word kingdom meant a place of absolute rule and authority under a king. If you want to know what God intend, his intended purpose in your salvation is to free you from who you've always been and literally bring you into his absolute rule and authority that he wants to express through your life. That's the basic, I mean, just as basic as you can get in terms of his plan of salvation. To free you from sin, to bring you under, and live in the flow of his absolute rule and authority. That's the definition of kingdom. Now, that's not only expressed. You, you find that as you go throughout the book of Revelation, that when the word kingdom is used, uh, it's focused on a person. Hey, I, I, am, I am living in the kingdom. I am living in his absolute rule and authority. However... I, I found it interesting that this word can also be used to describe, still singular, a group of people. Okay? A group of people. Okay? People in the kingdom. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. Meaning that you have a bunch of people that are walking around filled with His presence underneath the absolute rule and authority of Jesus Christ. You have a whole group of people. Okay? In other words, each and every one of you, if you're a Christian, hey, you literally have the kingdom being expressed in your life. You have the absolute rule and authority of Jesus Christ in your life. However, you could look up and say, hey, we make up the kingdom here. In other words, there are all of us together, individually. Hey, there's a whole group of people here that are the express rule and authority of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's how that word is used throughout the book of Revelation. However, we also have been picking up that there are more then one type of king, there's more than one type of kingdom expressed in the book of Revelation. Uh, in the first chapter, primarily it's given over to uh, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But when you begin to get into the book, you find out, for example, uh, if you would like to turn briskly over to Revelation chapter 11 and uh, kind of finger your way down to verse 15, you're going to read about another kingdom. You're going to read about another kingdom. 
I'm giving you an example uh, of this one, and I'm going to give you a couple other examples that I'm not going to read to you. Verse 17 says, the seventh, or, I'm sorry, verse 15 says, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom, singular, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So you have two distinct kingdoms that are expressed in that one verse. Okay? So you have the absolute rule and authority of Jesus Christ over against the absolute rule and authority of another kingdom, which is the world. And that world is defined, uh, if you want to flip just a couple more pages down to chapter 16 and look with me at verse 10. Verse 10 reads, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom. Ultimately, if you are not living in the authority of Jesus Christ underneath his rule and authority, you are underneath the control of another kingdom. In fact, as you begin to go throughout the book of Revelation, you find out that there are the kingdoms, plural, of the earth that wage against Christ. Rage, rage against God and his plan. And they wail. But all of those individual kingdoms are the expression of one kingdom, which is the kingdom of the enemy. So there's two kingdoms. There's not three, there's not four, there's not five. There's two kingdoms. You are going, that's pretty, pretty interesting. I'm wondering how that's going to be developed. You are either going to be the expression of his rule or the expression of another rule, which is ultimately the expression of a rule that is not Jesus, which will be the enemy. Okay? You have two kingdoms. And that, that, uh, that's important to us in the first chapter, which is why I bring it up to you, because it's been introduced. In verses 7 and 8, you have uh, both of those kingdoms mentioned, but specifically in verse 7 it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn. That's the people of the other kingdom. Okay? That's the people of the other kingdom. Now, these two in the, in the first chapter, uh, we begin to find that the kingdom, again, in the book of Revelation, I'm introducing you to the kingdom. The kingdom is a really thorough topic, a thorough theme throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, hey, Jesus is king of the kingdom. That's going on throughout the New Testament. But you have both of these kingdoms presented in the first chapter because throughout the book of Revelation, you have two kingdoms at war. Uh, in fact, in previous uh, sermons, I've uh, illustrated this as the football game uh, in, our, in our study of the people of praise. You have two teams. It's almost like a football game. You have two teams presented in the book of Revelation. You have God's team. You have the enemy's team. And what's really significant is that when we get into the seals, which run all the way up to chapter 12, and then there's a break, and you kind of have some repetition things going on, and still working through all that, and uh, I'm in chapter 1. <laughs> but um, as you begin to go through some of the seals, you look at the seals as the unfolding of the plan of God. In chapter 5, Jesus takes the scroll out of the right hand of the Father. On the scroll are how many seals? Seven. And in chapter 6, Jesus begins to pluck the seals of that scroll. And every time he plucks the, a seal off the scroll, these events of the Father, the plan of the Father begin to unfold. Which is really significant and really plain and, and obvious uh, a thought that Jesus is at the center of God's plan. And God's plan is flowing through Jesus. Jesus is the right hand by which God is, is moving and bringing about his plan. And, and it's almost like if, and this is loose translation or loose uh, uh, application, but uh, to be illustrated, the seals almost make up the, the plan of God as it is being, um, it is being unfolded. It's, it's, they're almost plays. 
Jesus is the quarterback. It's going to fall apart, so don't run away with this. But Jesus is the quarterback, God's the coach, and, and he's coming back, and God gives the play, and man, you have the seal uh, that pops off, and it's the play, and wham, and you see his rocking arm, and man, it's really fantastic. And, and uh, an, an aspect of God's plan unfolds, and, and it says in verses, uh, we really discovered this in verses 5 down through verse 8, 5b uh, down through verse 8, that the number one characteristic of the kingdom is that they are a people of praise, e- meaning that those people who are experiencing the rule and authority of Jesus Christ in their life are a people of praise because they're literally involved in this plan. They're seeing, they're seeing the hand of God in their midst. And they're, wow, that is a characteristic of this kingdom that is being introduced to us in the first chapter. Now that's, that's contrasted with, an, with another kingdom and a characteristic of that kingdom. And, the, <laughs> and the, the typical characteristic of that kingdom is not praise. In fact, they never praise you realize that the people in the other kingdom never praise their king? Not from a biblical perspective. They don't praise their king. They don't praise their king. They don't praise the enemy. They don't praise the beast. Okay, not like this. There's other language that expresses rejoicing and self-centered kind of fulfillment and, and that kind of a deal. But their, their number one tone throughout this book is mourning, which is what it said in verse 7. All the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So the people of the kingdom are praising and the people of the world, the people of the beast are mourning. Two kingdoms going on. Kingdom is a major thing in the theme in the book of Revelation. Two kingdoms going on. You have the kingdom of Christ and you have the kingdom of the beast, the kingdom of the enemy, kingdom of the world. Now, when we get down into verses 9 down through verse 20, the kingdom that has been introduced thus far takes on a center role. Okay, a center role. Still through how we're going to divide up the later verses in this section, but uh, we begin to see very quickly that there's a, uh, in verse 9, which will be a study, there is a perspective that's gained in the kingdom. Okay, there's a perspective that's gained in the kingdom, which is really significant that John, his perspective is not seeing the events of his life through the eyes of the world, he sees the events of his life through the perspective of the kingdom. He sees, his, he sees the events of his life through the moving of God in his life. In other words, that's how he faces every day. And that's intertwined with the character of the kingdom. This is so significant. John, listen to me, John is not a victim of his circumstances. John is not a victim of his circumstances. There is no woe is me, poor little me going on here in verses 9 through 20. I had to dig and scratch to find out all the details of how John ended up here. Because he doesn't say, oh, I was on the island of Patmos. Why? Well, that jerk Nero, I tell you, I can't stand him. Boiled me in oil for a while. By the way, he preached from the pot, tradition tells us. He was boiled in oil. Couldn't shut him up. He wouldn't die. He wouldn't renounce. He doesn't, he doesn't say it. That's not the reason why he's on the on Patmos. You know what the perspective is? You know what the character, the underlying perspective that's going on in his life, it's who he is, not memorized. Uh, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance of ours of Jesus Christ was on the on Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm, I'm involved in the kingdom. I'm involved in what God's doing in my world. Oh, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. I'm not a victim. Can't wait to preach that one. What I want to look with you tonight, just briefly, is there's another aspect that we begin to see surface here in, uh, in, in these opening verses, and specifically, I guess, in verse 9, is community. 
And I choose to use the word community uh, because it's just, it's the kingdom community. It's the body that comes together. It's, you have individuals that are the expression of his absolute rule and authority. They refer, they're referred to in verse 6 as a kingdom. But there's also those individuals, those individuals, are, they always clump together. They're always gathered together. They always form together. And they're called kingdoms. They're called the kingdom. In other words, a whole group of people, it's a whole group of people that have the same thing going on inside of them. They all get together and they have the same kind of, you know, rule and authority. They have the same kind of spirit at work in them. The same kind of things that are being accomplished in them. You have, uh, as we talked about in the book of Titus, the, all, the, uh, all the younger men get together. See, they're all after Jesus, not list of doing. They're not trying to pull off the same kind of things. As they begin to get after Jesus, the same characteristics are coming to pass in each one of their lives. They're all experiencing the same thing. They all walk out of the services and say, did you sense what I sense? I sense what well, I See, they're all, that's all going on in them. It's the community of believers. And I've really been fascinated. I've really, and I want to introduce this to you. I've really been fascinated with community language. And why community matters so much to me is we've been talking about it a lot this week. And um, community is a hot topic in our churches in this day. You go to a Christian bookstore, you're going to read all kinds of stuff about community. Uh, Rick Warren came up this week, okay? Rick Warren. And what his book, first book came out, um, Wes and I were talking about this, first book came out when we were juniors and seniors in college. And it was one of our curriculum to study. And, and new language to define community was being introduced to us. It was radically new, okay? Terms like fellowship and what that meant. We all knew what it meant growing up. <laughs> Every church had a fellowship. And what, we, what did we call having fellowship? Eating. <laughs> eating. Okay, eating. Those of you who became Christians the last 10 years, this is old jokes. But uh, yeah, see, that began to be challenged, which rightfully so, praise the Lord. It began to be challenged. And really, what is it? What's biblical community? What's, what's community from the perspective of, of, of the scriptures? Okay, they were really grasp, grasp, uh, grappling with that and grasping with that. Well, I begin to be discouraged. And I'm not knocking any, I'm certainly not knocking Rick Warren. I'm not knocking my education. But I. I, was, I began to feel pressure. In fact, I was openly uh, discouraged from itinerant evangelism, the circuit preacher. In fact, I had a professor pull me aside. Not preacher illustration stuff. This is true. I had a professor. This is a joke. I had a professor pull me aside and say, there is no place for the itinerant evangelist in the coming church. You will not make it. It is not going to exist in the coming church. And I walked away going, well, this wasn't my idea. You know? Seriously. I would love to be a rich pastor. You know? Rich missionary. I'd love that. Okay? You know, I'd love to be able to be a part of a softball team. I'm being honest with you. I'd like to be a part of a softball team. I'd love to have a consistent gym that I could go to and, and consistent friends. And, and I, hey, come on. I'm, this wasn't my idea. I was called to this. But I see, I begin to say that, I begin to feel pressure that the, the, the definition of community, and by the way, that is strong in these days, was, it was a threat. It was threatening me. It, was, uh, and it wasn't threatening me. It was... It was uh, uh, if you go into the kind of ministry that you're going into, you, you're not going to be able to have true biblical community. Because the way that community is being defined in these days has to do with relationships. And we would all say that's right. And I would say that's right. But it seems to me that it's relationships on a physical kind of a level. In other words, 
some of my friends say, uh, I'll call them. What are you guys doing? We're having fellowship. And I know they're not mean they're eating. We're having community. What are they doing? Fishing. Is there anything wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I believe that the definition of community we can talk about here can take place during fishing. But you can go fishing and not be in the de- definition here. So what are you guys doing? Well, we're going to go have coffee. We're going to get juiced on coffee. Okay, that's great. I like to get juiced on coffee. We're having community. But see, I couldn't... I'm kind of left out of that because I go from one place to one place and one place and one place and one place and I'm in 50 different places a year and we're traveling and been doing this for 10 years and it's hard for me to go fishing with the same kind of people every, every week. It's hard for me to get coffee with the same kind of people every week and how, do, how in the world... You come to training camp and you meet all the people and it's good to see you and, and they all look at you and say, let's get a hold and I say, I call you, which is a lie uh, because how in the world am I going to call all you people? I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going to call you. So just, I'm not going to call you. I can't call you. How do you have that kind of, honestly, how do you have that kind of fellowship? Leave me alone, Mark. How do you have that kind of fellowship with someone? I desire that. I'm telling you, folks, I desire biblical community. I don't believe there's anything, I don't believe there's just a me, me and Jesus Christianity. John has nailed that for us, hasn't he? Christianity is an us kind of thing. Then how does that work? See, if it's not a physical community, see, if it's not just a, a coming to church while I'm in community, I'm in biblical community, I'm fellowship in the body of believers, I'm a person of absolute rule and authority of Christ, he's living in my life, and I come to church on Sunday, see, how is that not biblical community? Well, I'm not saying that it's not, but I'm not, I'm, what I am saying, and you know this, and we'll give you some old illustrations, the tone of Christianity on everybody's mind, obviously, is beyond the physical. It's beyond physical gatherings, it's on physical activity. It's beyond physical activities. It's beyond that, that manner. See, the whole wonder of what we're finding in the book of Revelation, it's not focused on, and by the way, all of John's Gospels, he's called almost the mystic kind of writer. It's not physical. It's not focused on physical. There's something that in the physical, there's something going on beneath the surface. There's a spiritual happening in the life of a person, and that's what defines Christianity. You would say, give me an example of that. Give me tons of examples of that. Uh, Some of the ones that I use all the time, and you've heard these before probably. You can go to church on Sunday, and still, having gone to church on Sunday, never gone to church on Sunday. You can show up to church on Sunday and not participate in church. Because going to church on Sunday is... Showing up to a building is not going to church on Sunday. Amen. Going to church on Sunday has to do with him. That's right. I've heard Brian, okay, discussing and talking and helping us with worship. That you can come to church on Sunday and sing and never have gotten into worship. Because right. right. singing is standing up and you're singing the words and they're coming out of your mouth and you're saying this and you're saying that and you're singing these things. But see, you can do that and never have got into worship. And you'd say, what's the difference? Worship is about Him. And you can come to church on Sunday morning and sing and never have gotten about Him. Never, never sang to Him. Never really, never got into the whole, the, the praise and the movement of God that's all focused on Him. So, so worship is beyond just singing. It's beyond physical stuff. Now, that's, that's what I would consider introductory kind of. But you understand, I really believe that language is not only consistent, as we're going to find here in Revelation, it's used throughout the New Testament altogether. John chapter 3, Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, unless you are born again, you're never going to see the kingdom. Is he talking about physical? 
Nicodemus proposes that. So we can answer that emphatically and say no. Because Nicodemus says, well, that's going to be difficult. How can I be born a second time and enter my mother's womb again? Not talking about physical. Now, it's so radical that literally I am, a, I am an absolute different person because of the authority of Jesus Christ expressed in my life. In other words, when I became saved, listen to me, when I became saved, it was more than a physical uh, reorientation of events. It was more than just a physical reorientation of priorities. Well, you got saved. What happened? I cut my hair. Yeah. Yeah. Cut my hair. You know? Start dressing correctly. No more shorts. And, uh, you know, um, I... That's never what, we, we all, hey, that's basic, it's beyond physical, we all understand that. Christianity is beyond, it's beyond the physical activities in our life, born again language. Um, excuse me. My wife messed up my notes. <laughs> She's not here, I can do that. Beyond physical activity. <laughs> When I begin to get into the book of Revelation, I begin to see that um, the redemption of man, this was a new one for me, the redemption of man as presented in the book of Revelation, it's not a physical redemption. Not a physical redemption, it's a spiritual redemption. It's a spiritual redemption that echoes in the physical. In fact, part of it, you say, what do you mean by physical redemption? Our suffering and our death is even a part of his plan. Physically. Suffering and physical pain are a part his plan. In fact, I don't know, this may be as shocking to you as it was for me, when you come into chapter 6, in between one of the seals, uh, you have a number of people that are crying out in verse 9 from beneath the altar. When he opened, verse 9, chapter 6, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ that they maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had had been completed. It's a part of his plan. It's got to be more. Got to knock off a few more, and then, hey, we're going to go and... Check tongue-in-cheek language. So literally, what we've been finding as the, as the book of Revelation unfolds, the focus is not on a physical thing, it's on a spiritual thing. In fact, sin, and we all know this, is thoroughly a spiritual issue in the life of man. Okay? In fact, we also know that a lot of the physical symptoms in our life are sp- spiritual. Okay? The physical symptoms in our life are spiritual. Um, some examples of... Uh, of, uh, of the way, and I'll just give you one that uh, would appear to be a physical. People, uh, we were at this church, wasn't a, wasn't a Nazarene church, we were at this church, and uh, we'd been there for, they had us, this church had us five or six times over the period uh, of, about, uh, of about five or six years. In fact, it may have been once a year. I was thinking uh, we went twice in one year, and, and they were young, and the first time we went there, they only ran like 19 or 20, and they were growing and excited. They were up to our 200 after a few years, and they bought a new building, and, and God was moving. And then sin, sin entered their congregation. Sin entered, but the big debate that was going on in the church, and by the way, they flattened now, kind of what sin does in the body, they flattened, but there's a big debate that it was what was sin and what wasn't sin. The worship leader, who was this woman, was having an affair on her husband. But it wasn't an affair to her because she physically, she physically never went and got with the guy. Okay, in a physical way. It was her boss at work. 
But she emotionally dumped on him. They went out to lunch together. They hung out together. They called on the phone together. And be, be, beyond the physical relationship, they had an emotional tie. And she literally treated this man as her husband. Without the, It was a sin issue in her life. And then after she left her husband, continuing to be worship leader at the church, brought this guy to church and justified all that. Why? Because they hadn't physically... Folks, that's sin. That's, that's defined as sin. Because sin is not, you can't piece, I believe, you can't piece sin together on a physical level. In other words, sin doesn't look like a physical thing. Well, sin is stealing, and basketball is not sin. That's not true. Basketball can be just as sin as much as stealing can be sin. Hope I didn't confuse you. The focus in the book of Revelation, okay, the focus on the, uh, in the book of Revelation is on the kingdom. Okay? And the kingdom characteristics as they are being described are beyond physical levels which is, which is consistent with every bit of Christianity. When we're talking, the, the flow and the thread of Christian community is an intensely spiritual matter. Now let me, give you, let me introduce some of the language that's used to you here in verse 9. And you're going to note, again, and, and why I'm bringing all this up, is that the language that's being used to describe the kingdom is not physical language. Okay? And, and what's, what I found so intriguing about this, it isn't like he uses some physical language to describe the kingdom and then some non-physical, strictly spiritual language. It's all spiritual, which is not to disregard the physical because we know physical has to be there. We're physical people. But the emphasis is spiritual. For example, verse 9. John introduces himself to the seven churches in the province of Asia and he says, I, John, your brother. Now, let me ask you, do you really think that he's physically their brother? No. So that is what kind of language? Spiritual linkage kind of language. Spiritual linkage kind of language. In other words, there is a linkage, there is a connection, there is a family kind of together that's between you and I that is beyond the physical, that is a spiritual kind of a thing. He goes on. I, John, your brother and companion, we're going to deal with that in a few minutes, but that's the same thing. And I can deal with a little bit of it now. He says, I am your companion. The word companion is the word son and koinonia, which is with and partner, which is a partnering with. Okay? And it's a strong, it's actually a strong physical kind of a term that will not, will, doesn't work correctly here. Because he's, the partnering that he's talking about it's in, he, did, he has not partnered with some of the things physically that they're undergoing. See, they were not boiled in the pot with him. None of, the, none of these people are on the island of Patmos with him. See, there's no physical kind of tie. Are, are you with me? On, do you see that? See, as he looks through some of the... Some of the de- you read through some of the details of this church. He wasn't with them in that. He didn't experience physically what they're experiencing in their kind of circumstances. See, this is always kind of... This really helps. This really helps... And really hurts some of the definitions of community we have. I think we're under the impression, and it's been mentioned this week, that true community is only possible in target groups and, you know, and we should have a church that's all white. We should have a church that's all Hispanic. We should have a church that's all black. We should have a church that's all Asian. We should have a church that's all middle class. 
Okay? Because how can we relate on... See, what if the relations... What if relationships were not on a physical kind of level, and it's not that they can't be there, but what if the interconnectedness was something beyond the physical? That you and I could all experience something that was beyond, well, you haven't been abused by your father, so you can't relate to me. Really? Show me where, that, show me where that, that's, that's expressed here. Show me where that's expressed here. Well, I can't go to that church. Why? Well, they don't have any alcoholics there. They don't have any drug, former drug addicts there. I introduced cross out all that, by the way. I'm a, I'm a, you can call me recovering if you want to. But that was my lifestyle. So none of these, see, when he says you, uh, to partner with, the, the companion term, I'm your brother, that's not physical, and partner with, I'm your companion. See, you can't spell that out physically. In fact, I went, again, great pains. I went back, and some of them, you just, there's no information on it. And I've got a pretty exhaustive resources on my, I mean, available to me, and spend enough money on the stuff, that uh, you, you can search out these churches, and some of these churches, we're not even sure who started them. We chalk some of them up as Paul, but we don't know. Now we know Ephesus. Ephesus, you can read back, uh, read about back in chapter nineteen. There's a lot of a lot of details there. But some of these churches, I not only couldn't tie uh, tie John to, I couldn't tie anybody to. So the companionship that we're talking about, that John is is writing about here, you, there's no details anywhere in Scripture that shows his linkage physically with these churches. So that tells us that the companionship he's talking about is not physical. It may be. But he's not talking about it on a physical level. In other words, I'm, I'm your companion. Why? Because I go down every week and I, I'm digging through the same dirt that you are. That's not what he's talking about. You following me on that? It's really significant. And then, of course, he says, I'm John, your, uh, I, John, your brother and your companion in the suffering. They haven't suffered the same things. And the kingdom, we've already expressed that. Okay, the, the, the rule and authority. And the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus Christ. See, there is a, there, all the language that's used to describe community in verse 9, it's not the typical, this is really encouraging to a guy like me, it's not your typical, it's not the typical language you read about community in this day and age, which I'm not going to knock about. We need all the physical language that we hear and all the books that you have you can keep, but I believe that's secondary. I believe that the real precedence for biblical community that's being presented here in verse 9 is that there is a spiritual companionship. There is a spiritual linkage that you can have with somebody that supersedes the physical. And I'm not saying that you don't have to have the physical, and I'm not saying that the physical is there or should be there on any of that kind of language. I am telling you that there is a spiritual linkage that has to be there or you do not have biblical community. You would say, give me an example of that. Um, I'm going to give you one example. And then I'm going to tell you how I feel about it. Uh, I went back in the Gospels, and I began to look, and I found some places in Revelation, which would take too long to explain. And I got a couple different illustrations of the kind of spiritual linkage you're talking about you can experience with a group of people. And I went back, and I thought of Jesus. And uh, he has 12 disciples that follow, follow him. And... Um, He's, he's traveling. He's, they're, they're going with him. And, and of course, there's miracles taking place. There's, there's teaching taking place. There's, uh, I mean, there's, there's riots. There's, there's pressure. There's all of this inner... And it's, Jesus is always seeming to grab his disciples 
and he's pulling their pulling them away from the physical kind of uh, miracles, the physical kind of things that they're doing, and he wants them to get in on something that's beyond just simply physically following him around. For instance, he uses language like "take up your cross and follow me." When you and I know plain well that they're not going to be able to take up it, they're all going to run. Then why would he use that language? He says, "I want you to participate. I want you to feel. I want you to be involved in the kind of see. I'm under the absolute rule and authority of my father and I want you to participate in that with me. In fact, if you really want to know how I feel about it, I think that was what was going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't think Jesus was lonely. I don't think he was scared. I'm scared of the dark. Could you hang out over here? I'm going to pray right over there. I don't think that's what he was talking about. I think he grabbed Peter, James, and John and says, hey, I want you guys to, I want you to, I want, to, I want you to participate this, uh, participate with me in this. Because I think you and I were born and created for this kind of biblical relationship. That you and I weren't meant to do this all by ourselves. Now bring that application in your church. See, what would it be like? And I can bring it in several different applications, but I guess we could use church. Wouldn't it be neat to go to a church where it's not just physically, yeah, I go to church with that person over there, but I go to a whole I go to a church where See, we all come and we all feel the pressure of the moving of God into our world. And we all feel the same kind of drive and we're all seeing the same kind of things moving and we're all sensing the same movement of God and we're all beginning to burn with the same kind of... In fact, I think that's what Jesus meant by let them all be one. As you and I are one, let them be one with us. So that we're all, we're all hungry for the same kinds of thing. And, and even in the middle of our little petty differences and our skin color and our, and our country music differences from, from this music and that and all of our different... See, none of that matters because we have this... In, the physical stuff doesn't really matter because we have this inside kind of... Under the rule and authority of Jesus Christ that we're all kind of experiencing. My wife and I, after 10 years of marriage, are beginning to sense that together. I think maybe that's, I, begin, I think you begin to learn some of that in marriage. You begin to kind of, you begin to feel the pressure, the same kind of, and we discipline different. We discipline our kids different. But we're under the same kind of pressure, we're under the same kind of, in the involvement of our kids. Do you have that going on in your life? Do you have that going on in your church? If I ever, if I ever leave the road in evangelism, I used to say stuff like, I think I would like to, and I, I can't believe I'm actually, I thought like this, but I, I thought, I think I'd like to pastor uh, an inner, inner city church. I've always, and it's not for the inner city people. <laughs> it's Starbucks is right downtown and, you know, and, and it's close and there's a Barnes and Noble there and really, well, I wouldn't want a church out in that podunk area of town and boy, forget the South and I'd probably want to be up North and I'd probably like to move to Oregon. And, and when anybody ever said, hey, if you could pastor a church, you know, where would you go? Oh, Oregon. And that's the way I've... He's been, uh, he's been changing that in me a little bit. What kind of church would you go to? Where, where would you go? Where would you like to pastor? I think I'd like to pastor at the kind of place where true biblical community was taking place. Where I could feel the same kind of pressure that everybody else feels. That I could be caught up in a vision that's beyond physical kind of stuff. That's what I want in cross Island. That's the kind of linkage I want to have with my brothers. That's, see, I want, I, want, I want to have that kind of draw on the inside. I want to feel the same kind of feelings. I want to, I want to hunger for the same kind of hunger. I want to... 
Jesus, we love you this, we love you this evening. I look in uh, Revelation chapter 1 verse 9. And Revelation is such a significant, it's become such a significant book into me, a book in my life. And probably because it does talk about everything that you set out to accomplish in the redemption of Jeremiah Bullock and those who are present here is, is found completed in Jesus Christ. And hey, Revelation unveils some final things and biblical community is presented in, the, in these pages, Lord. And Biblical community is not about this sanctuary in the sky with the golden pews and the... It's not location-oriented. And Jesus, we're physical people and there's going to be physical things and you created us to be physical and we don't deny that. But what if you desire in our relationship with you that we could see the way that you see? We could feel the way you feel. We will begin to laugh at the things that you laugh at. That it's no longer about dress that moves us. It's no longer about skin color that moves us. The tailoring in our life is not a physical kind of a thing. It's an inward kind of posture. In the name of Jesus, I'm open for that tonight. And I believe, I believe Jesus that John is expressing to the seven churches that everything that you're going through in these days, all the pressure, all the pain, all the hurt, all the joy, all the mission, hey, I'm, I'm feeling the same kind of pressure. I'm same kind of pressure and I'm 60 miles from you on an island. We love you, Jesus. Accomplish what you want in our life. Let us worship.